0: So these stories from Luke, let's take a little while to look at this together. Uh, For some of us, we are really familiar with these stories. We know them well, and they're beautiful, precious stories to us. The story of a sheep and and a a shepherd who would go looking for that one sheep. Um, We can imagine someone losing a coin and sweeping the house until they find it. And then one of the most famous stories that Jesus told, we call it the prodigal son, the son who left home took his share of the inheritance um, and then eventually returned and his father embraced him and had a party. There is such beauty in these stories Um, and we'll capture some of that as we look at them tonight but actually we're going to put it in the context of how Jesus told them um, which was to the religious leaders so if you remember in the reading Um, The the Pharisees, who are the religious people that have had long beards and long robes, um, and the scribes, also religious people, are watching Jesus as he eats with, and as Luke says, sinners and tax collectors. You can almost imagine the accent that they're saying. "Oh, Disgusting. This man from Nazareth. People say he's a prophet. People say he's a teacher from God. People say he has power. But look, he's with sinners. And you can imagine the tone, sinners, and tax collectors. Notice tax collectors get their own category. Um, Because tax collectors were part of God's people, but they were working for Rome, the oppressor. And uh, so they were even worse. They were people who had betrayed God's people. They were people who were breaking the covenant, if you like of keeping God's people pure and working for uh, the Roman oppressor um, and then taking people's money to do it. So tax collectors is kind of the lowest of the low. And the sinners um, would have been all kinds of people who weren't obeying the law. Um, And some of them would not have been allowed to worship at the temple because they'd have been seen as being unclean. So the religious rulers are watching Jesus with these people and saying, how, why is he doing this? He can't be a holy man because holy people don't spend time with unclean people. If Jesus is pure and holy, like us, the Pharisees, big beards, white robes, very pleased with themselves. If he's holy, why is he with sinful people? He wouldn't do that. Why is he with tax collectors? And the Pharisees say he's eating with them. And one of the things which some of you will realize and understand, that in this part of the world, in the Middle East, having food together is really important. It means relationship and friendship. It means there's a, there's a heart connection forming between you. You're not just having a sandwich to have a chat to get to know someone. It's deeper than that. It will be one thing for Jesus to walk down the street and maybe have a conversation with a sinner. But for him to actually sit and eat. And have hospitality with them. Is outrageous. And that's what the Pharisees can't understand. So the, the background to these stories. Is Jesus responding to criticism. From the religious people. Who think they're in the right. And that puts a different perspective on these stories the beauty that we love about them the drama of a son who turns away from his father all of that is still there but there's something else going on and that's what we're going to look at as we go through these stories so a few comments the first one first thing to say someone having a hundred sheep is actually quite a lot of sheep there's no reason why any of us would know that You know, how many sheep are are a lot if if you're in that part of the world? Is it six? Is it 100? Is it 200? Well, actually, 100 is a a good-sized flock. It suggests wealth. doesn't mean you're ever so rich. Um, But, you know, most families would only have a handful. If if your living is looking after sheep and then killing them for the sacrifices, um, then you'd have more. But most families would only have a few sheep. So a hundred sheep is a high number of a lot of worth, a lot of money. In Luke's version of this story, there is no shepherd. Jesus says to them, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes away and is lost, would you not leave the 99 and go looking for it? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, remember, the religious people. He's saying, if you had a hundred sheep, if you were a shepherd, wouldn't you go and look for one? That's what a shepherd would do. The sheep are worth money. It's your living. No one's going to ask you to care for sheep if you lose them. Sometimes shepherds were hired to look after other people's sheep. So they would not get much of a living or a good reputation for looking after sheep if they lost them. So what Jesus is saying here is obvious. Of course, if you lose a sheep, you're gonna go and look for it. What's interesting, what's important for us to understand is when Jesus says to the religious people, the religious rulers, if you had a hundred sheep, if you were a shepherd, which is what he's saying, and you lost one, you would go and find one, wouldn't you? This is important. There's a prophet. In the Old Testament called Ezekiel and the prophets would bring messages from God to God's people. Most of the prophets spoke to God's people and in Ezekiel chapter 34 the whole chapter is about bad shepherds. The prophet is bringing a message from God to Israel's leaders and saying you have been bad shepherds. I'll read some of it to you. This is the first four verses Of Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You haven't strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. Listen to this bit. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. This is a famous prophecy. God's people would know about this prophecy. This was the word of God for them. They had the scrolls of the prophets. They would had been taught this growing up as children the Pharisees themselves would know these words and these scriptures. So when Jesus says to them in this story, if you had sheep, in other words, if you were a shepherd, wouldn't you go and get the one sheep? See, what Jesus is saying, and he's not being very subtle, is you're bad shepherds. I've come to look for the lost sheep. That's what you should be doing, religious rulers. That's what the prophet Ezekiel said. But you are telling me I'm wrong. You're muttering, why is he with these unclean people? I'm the good shepherd, is what Jesus is saying. I'm being what you should be, a shepherd who looks for the lost. This is what the religious rulers should be doing. This is what they should be like. Shepherds caring for Israel, caring for God's people, going after the lost. But instead of going after the lost, they're folding their arms, stroking their beards and shaming Jesus for doing the thing that they should be doing. That's the real power in this story. Of course, it's a beautiful story of a shepherd that would leave the rest of the sheep and go searching for the lost. Of course, you and I are the lost sheep. God has searched for us and found us. It's amazing. But there's something else going on, is Jesus is looking at the religious people and saying, Ezekiel talked about this. Ezekiel said, you're supposed to be the ones that look for the lost. And now you're condemning me for doing what you should be doing? And the crowd would have known this. And the tax collectors and the sinners would have known this. This is electric. This is like big news happening in the town square. I can imagine the crowd would have grown as people said, hey, quick, quick, Jesus, he's really having a go at the religious rulers. You know, the ones that always tutter at us, the ones that always walk away from us. They see us sinners coming and they always go around us. Come and listen, Jesus is telling them they're the bad shepherds. I know Luke isn't telling us any of that, but I'm not making it up. That's what would have gone on as Jesus told these stories against the Pharisees. Let's look at the next one. The lost coins. First thing to mention, 10 coins is also a lot of coins. It's hard for us to understand this. Um, It says one coin is a day's wages. And we think because many of us are living uh, when we have more than 10 days wages, I know at the the moment some of us are living with huge uncertainty because of COVID. We don't know what's going to happen with with jobs and it's deeply challenging for some of us. Well, in Jesus' time, for someone to have 10 coins, 10 days' wages saved up, doesn't mean they're very wealthy, but neither are they very poor. They're kind of in the middle. The majority would be poor. So it's not like in many of our settings where the majority are in the middle and there's some rich, very, very rich, and some poor. In Jesus' time, the majority of people were poor. And they wouldn't have 10 days' wages, 10 coins saved up. Many of them would be looking for work one day at a time. We still see this where we live and in this region, different countries I've been. You can go past... Um, public squares and you'll see groups of men waiting for someone to come along and hire them. The People in the town know that if you need some hire, if you need someone to work your farm for the day, or need someone to help you build something for a day, you just drive down the, the square and have a chat and find yourself a builder. We see men here sitting on street corners with two or three tools with them. None of them are wealthy enough to have a box of tools they may have one drill, or they may have one other tool, and they just sit and wait. And their tool is like an advertisement. It's like, look, I've got a drill. You need some work doing. I'll, I'll do a job for you. They can't afford to advertise. There isn't much advertising here anyway. They, 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 they're not going to use Facebook. They probably can't afford a smartphone. So they just sit outside waiting for someone to hire them. That would have been a lot more common in Jesus' day. Most people would work for a day, feed their family, hope they can get work the next day, or maybe two or three days' worth. So this woman is reasonably wealthy to have 10 coins. The point Jesus is making is when she loses one, she's going to search everywhere for it. A day's wage is a big amount of hoots, and she's going to search everywhere for it. She's going to light a lamp and clean the house until she finds it. Notice the reference to lighting the lamp. She's putting light into the darkness to find something. Who's the light of the world? I'll let you answer that where you are. I I can't hear you. You're all muted. Who's the light? Who's the lamp? It's Jesus. Who shines in the darkness? Jesus. Why does Jesus shine in the darkness? Because he's come to seek and save the lost. We're worth much more than a lost coin. And Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the lamp. He's the one who's come to search in the darkness. When she finds this coin, she's so happy, she gets her neighbours and friends in. Actually, she has a party. I know Luke doesn't use that word, but if you're going to get your neighbours and friends to come into your house in the Middle East, you're going to serve food and you're going to have something to drink. You don't just invite them in to say, here's my coin, isn't this great? Bye-bye, everybody. Whenever there's a gathering, there is food, there is drink. She has a party, probably spending quite a bit of the coin that she's just found. She is that happy, that joyful, that she becomes generous and shares what she has just found. Jesus, again, is pointing at the Pharisees. This woman has a party, celebrating what was lost, even spending some of what was lost. The Pharisees are watching Jesus, light of the world, searching in the darkness for the lost, the unclean, the tax collectors, and they're on the side, tutting. They're not going to have a party. They're not rejoicing. They're judging. And Jesus is saying, if this woman, for one coin, can have a party, We're talking about lost people here who actually are the covenant people of God, and you're judging that they're being found. Again, everyone knew the point Jesus was making. Let's get to the third story, the one that's got the most detail, um, and a story that we know so, so well. But again, it's full of beauty, full of things that stir our hearts, but it's also directed straight at the Pharisees. We have a woman, we have a shepherd, we have a woman, and now in this story we have a father. The father represents God the father. So this is getting even more important. Jesus is kind of building up. Jesus details just how lost this son is. Remember, Jesus has come for the lost. He's spending time with tax collectors and sinners. The story Jesus tells is full of details to say you can't get much more lost than this son. He asks his father for his share of the inheritance. That's shameful. You don't do that in this region, in this part of the world, because it's like saying, Dad, I can't wait until you die because I'm going to get some money. And I want some money and I want some wealth. In fact, I want to be independent. So it's not just the greed, it's the fact that the son wants to leave home. One of the things that I knew anyway before we came here was the strong value of family life. There are still, there's families we have met where children in their, they're now adults and they're still living at home. One of our neighbours is living at home. She's got a job and she's studying on top of that and she's still living at home. And it's not because she can't afford to live somewhere else. It's because she's not even thought about it. Why would she? Why would she leave her family? For us in the West, in our individualistic, independent culture, we're thinking as soon as you get a job, as soon as you can afford to move out, move out and make a name for yourself and make a living for yourself. That is so the opposite and anti the value that's here in the East. Where to stay at home, to honour your family, until you get married. And even then, you'll see your family every week. And even then, your mother will want to know if you've had children, how soon you're going to have children. It's all about family and loyalty. So... Don't just think that the son is being greedy and asking for money. That's not the only thing that makes him shameful and makes him lost. The fact that he's asking for inheritance, really kind of saying, dad, I wish you weren't alive anymore. Yes, there's greed because he wants this money to go and have a great time. And most of all is the offense to the family that he's saying, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm gonna go. It's one of the reasons why later in the story, his brother is so upset that the father has welcomed him back, because the brother's saying, "I've always been here." And we miss the importance of that. The, the older brother is he's shocked what why you he left. You're welcoming him back. I've been here all the time. In other words, I've been a true son." So Jesus is painting a picture of just how lost his son is. When he gets the money, he wastes it on immoral living. For the Pharisees, the religious people, big beards, long robes, tutting, this is outrageous. How can a son in a family in Israel, God's covenant people, go and do the things that he's doing? The immoral living makes him unclean, means his father should disown him. This is a lost son. Then in desperation, he takes a job. And we, many of us will know the irony of the job he takes, caring for pigs. No good Jewish person is going to go near a pig. In the part of the world where we're living, pigs are unclean. Um, and, and people, you, you don't talk about it even with, with the majority religion here. It's the same, same idea, it's the same law, unclean. And from what we can work out, they have one word for pig, which is pig in Arabic. You think how many words we have to describe all the different cuts of meat and everything else. You don't need it here when you don't eat it. When it's unclean, haram, don't go near it. The picture Jesus is painting is of someone so, so lost, so shameful, so dirty, so unclean. Jesus is not holding back. He's really going for it with these Pharisees. You're touching at me being with the unclean and the tax collectors and sinners. Let me tell you a story of a real, real sinner. Betrays his father, lives immorally, wants money, then ends up having to work with the uncleanest animal that there is, breaking so many of God's laws. He's betrayed his father. He's betrayed his family, he's betrayed the town, he's betrayed his people. But then there's this beautiful line in how Luke tells the story, which says the son came to his senses. He realises how lost he is and realises that actually if he returns home, maybe his father will have some mercy and let him work as a servant. Maybe the father will have some compassion I'm not want me feeding pigs. If he knows I'm feeding pigs, surely he'll give me a job just working as a servant. So he comes to his senses. He realizes what he's done is wrong. To use another word that Jesus uses, he repents. He turns. And he begins to head home. So the first shocking thing in this story is the son's behavior up until this point. It's shocking that any son in Israel would do the things he did. The second shock is how the father responds. People would have been just as shocked at the son's behavior, with the father's response as they were with the son's behaviour. Because the father should disown him. Or at the very best say, okay, you can sleep in a room outside and you can be a servant. But this father lets the whole town know the son is back. This father greets him with a kiss. This father puts a ring on his hand. This father gets him the clothes. This father kills the fattened animal that will be saved for the best of parties. This father celebrates and lets the whole village know, the whole town know that his son is back. He was lost, but now he's found. And I want everyone to know. Everyone would be thinking, what is the father doing? The son has shamed him. This is even more shameful. It's like the father is carrying on as if the son hasn't done anything. What is the father doing? You don't behave like this when a son betrays you. You don't behave like this when a son lives like he's lived. You don't behave like this when he ends up feeding pigs. You don't throw your arms around him. You tell him to go to the temple and get cleaned by the priests. You tell him to make sacrifices. The Father does none of that. None of the language that the Pharisees think, the, 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 and, or and the language and actions that the Pharisee thinks the Father should do, none of them are there. No ritual cleansing, no going through washing, nothing. He throws his arm around him, he kisses him, he gives him a ring, and he lets the whole town know. This is the extravagant love and mercy. The Son is restored back into the family. This is God the Father. That's what Jesus is going for here. This is how Jesus is living. He's going to eat with these sinners and tax collectors. Yes, they've sinned. Yes, they're shame. Yes, they're unclean. Jesus isn't pretending otherwise. But if they turn, if they listen, if they come back, then Jesus will embrace them and restore them to the relationship with the Father. This is a stunning, stunning story. We could stop and sing again right now. It's so stirring my heart. There's a few more things we need to say, though. <clears throat> the older son in the story is like the Pharisees. He's judgmental and harsh. Like the Pharisees, he has a point. His brother had been sinful and selfish. He has betrayed the family. He has been lost. All of those things are true. But the son hasn't understood the love and mercy and compassion of his father, just like the Pharisees have forgotten how merciful and forgiving God is. God is the father in this story, and the Pharisees, as Israel's teachers, should know this. See, the Pharisees and the scribes taught the stories from the Old Testament, which are full of how God keeps coming to his people, even though they turn from him. Even though through their history, God's people worshipped other gods and turned from him, and God sent them prophet after prophet to bring them back. And God stayed faithful to them and God had love and God had mercy and God found his people when they were lost again and again. And the Pharisees taught this and the scribes made sure it was written properly and recorded properly. And now God is doing it again. He sent his son to come and find the lost and to fling his arms around them and to put a ring on their hand and to celebrate the fact that they have come back. And the religious teachers with their big beards are standing there judging what actually god is doing what hypocrisy what harshness what hardness and jesus is holding nothing back because he's saying look i've come for the loss like the son in this story and if they receive me they're restored to relationship with the father and you pharisees are like this son the older brother judging That the father throws a party and the older brother doesn't come. That's huge. You think about that. The father welcomes back the son, embraces him. And the older brother is so offended, like the Pharisees, he stays away. He doesn't welcome him back. So let's begin to bring some of this together and sum some of this up. These stories are making some beautiful, powerful points about the love of our father, about his mercy and compassion. We celebrate that for ourselves because we are the ones who are lost. We could be the sheep, we could be the coin, we could be the child that's turned and run away and yet God has come after us and restored us. First thing that runs through these stories, you hardly need me to say it, God is intentional about pursuing the lost. God is holy, we know this from his word. He's powerful, he rules over all things, and yet he is like the shepherd that searches for the one. He's like the woman that sweeps the house until it finds the coin. He's the father that welcomes back the lost children. The God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is a God who looks for those who are on the edge, those who feel excluded, those who feel they wouldn't be welcome because of how they lived, those who feel they're too dirty and too unclean to come close. And when they turn and respond to him, he restores them. There is joy, not judgment. There is celebration, not condemnation. The other thing that we see in all three of these stories is the joy, the party, the celebration. Look, I found my lost sheep. Neighbours, friends, come, I found my coin. And now I'm spending it on a party for you. Come on, let's celebrate. The father having a party for the son. The joy when one returns. That's the joy that was in heaven. It says the angels rejoiced. When we first understood God's love for us and turned to him and said, "I, I want to be your child. I want to be restored to you. We probably didn't use those words, but like the sun in this story, when we first understood God's love for us and responded to it, there is rejoicing in heaven. Every one of you on this meeting tonight, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the moment you did that, heaven had a party. That's how excited, that's the celebration. God is intentional. About looking for the lost, he's not a distant God. He's not far away. He's a God who is involved. He's a God who comes searching. Maybe, with everything that's been going on through this virus and how shocking everything's been, and how difficult it's been, and the uncertainty, maybe you feel that you're distant from God. Maybe you feel your relationship with God hasn't been everything that it should be. And I want to say this tonight, before we sing again, God's not distant from you. You just have to turn and he's ready to greet you and bring you back. He's ready for that relationship to be restored. Don't hold back. Don't be thinking, yeah, but I've done this before or it's happened again or I'm just dirty. Jesus came for those who are dirty, those who felt they weren't good enough. Jesus himself said in a story a bit later in Luke, when he's in another tax collector's house, He said, the reason I've come is to seek and save the lost. That's the other thing that we see through these stories, is Jesus is making it very clear why he has come. He's come for the lost. That's what he's come for. That's who he wants to be with. That's who he's looking for. You see, God pursuing us, God's desire to find the lost is the story of the Bible. It begins in Eden, in the garden at the beginning. Adam and Eve don't obey God. They turn from him and eat the one thing which God told them not to. And then immediately they realize they've done wrong. So they hide. It's almost like they make themselves lost. They know God's going to come walking in the garden because it tells us that in in the story, so Adam and Eve hide. And in Genesis 3, a uh, time when Adam and Eve have committed the very first sin, the very first act of rebelling against God, made they, they made the choice, oh, we know better than God, we'll do what we want. You read this stunning thing, it's like these stories. God came walking in the garden and called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? God knew where they were. God knew they were hiding. God knew what was happening. He hadn't missed anything. But God came searching and God called their name because God is a God who searches for the lost. It's right there, right at the beginning of the story. And then you follow the story all the way through the scripture and you see a God who again and again comes looking for the lost, looking for the lost until we get to Jesus, God himself coming searching for the lost. It's the whole story of the Bible looking for those who are lost to restore them to him. That's what salvation is. That's what that word means. It means lots of things. It means forgiveness. It means me being made clean. It means being given honor instead of shame, but it also means being restored to relationship with our father. These stories are talking to us about our worth to him. The joy, the partying, the celebration, we are made in his image and we have been lost. And sin and evil has distorted, broken that image. When we return to him and restored to him, and there's celebration and joy, it shows how much we're worth to him. Not in a way which is meant to make our self-esteem feel better. It's not about us. It's not about self-esteem. Oh, God's found me. I must be special. No, you were lost. There's nothing special but you have worth to him because you're made in his image one of his children that were lost and he's come after you. And then another thing I want to draw out just before we finish is this priority of looking and finding the lost for Jesus. Jesus could have done anything. He had power. He could do miracles. He could have Started a new political movement. He could have overthrown Rome. You think of all the needs that there were You you think of some of the questions people ask have asked you before if there's a God Why doesn't he do this if there's a God? Why doesn't he change that if there's a God? Why doesn't this happen? Well, Jesus would have had the same questions Jesus could have met any number of needs, but he didn't He did feed hungry people sometimes And he did heal the sick plenty of times. But his priority was restoring people to his father. His priority was salvation. You see, there's a challenge in these stories. The Pharisees thought they loved God. They thought they were serving him. They thought they were right to exclude people who weren't obeying the law. It's very sobering and shocking when we look at the Pharisees and think, oh yeah, the long beard's tutting, typical. But actually, you and I, if we loved God and we were alive at the time of Jesus, we'd have been with the Pharisees. We'd have been with them because they were the ones that were teaching God's word. If you were zealous, if you were enthusiastic about following God, you'd have listened to the Pharisees. This passage is a challenge to us who follow Jesus. It's a challenge to the church, who is is made up of the followers of Jesus. You see, if we follow Jesus, that means his priorities become our priorities. If we follow Jesus, it's not just believing a set of doctrines. It is that believing who he is, that he was from God, believing what he did on the cross, what happened in his resurrection. It is about beliefs, but following Jesus is actually living like Jesus going to the places Jesus went to, being with the people Jesus was with, following his example. Of course, like the angels, we rejoice every time someone puts their faith in Jesus. Every baptism is a time of celebration. And I know real life, church, you know how to celebrate. I've seen it. I know how you celebrate every time someone is baptised. It's wonderful. Of course, there's that meaning in these stories of course that encourages us builds our faith that god came for us that god celebrates in the lost found. but what about the people in our communities who are not like us what about those who when we do meet are not going to come to the meeting because they don't think they're good enough they don't think they've lived a good enough life to be a church person or to be someone who knows god they live with shame They feel unclean and dirty. You see, on my screen tonight, we all look pretty shiny. We've got nice homes. Yeah, I know there's lots of challenges at the moment, everything that's happening with COVID. But many of us are doing okay in terms of what's around us. And even though there's some huge unknowns in the coming months, in terms of the friendship and support hopefully we've got from one another and we can support each other through this, what about those who haven't got that? What about those whose brokenness means their relationships are so fractured they haven't got those support structures? What about those whose lives don't look so shiny and so nice? What about those who actually we would consider to be our enemies? You see the outrageous thing about this story uh, that Jesus is telling with the lost son um, and what's happening with the tax collectors and the sinners is that God's love and compassion even goes for those who don't love God, even goes for those who are considered to be God's enemies. That's what the Pharisees struggled with. But these people are dirty. They're not interested in God. Their lives seem to show that they're against God. But Jesus went for them. What about our enemies? What about those who seem to be against the church and against faith? Are we going to pursue them? Are we going to keep a distance? Or are we too afraid? Or people who don't look like us, or don't worship the same God as us, or don't support the same football team, or children that go to the same school, or don't have the same tastes in music as us, or whatever else? What about the people in our communities who worship at different places? See, these are the people that Jesus came for. I wonder sometimes if Jesus were arrived in Birmingham and in Sutton where we'd find him on a Sunday. Would he be hanging out with us? Would he be on this Zoom call? I think we'd find him somewhere else. I think we'd find him in the dark places. Of course he's with us. He never leaves us. Of course he loves what we're doing tonight. We're his bride. He loves the church. He's thrilled that we're gathering together and worshipping him and taking time out to hear his word and connect in this way. Oh, he loves that. But in terms of where Jesus would spend most of his time if he was walking around Birmingham, it wouldn't be in our religious buildings. It would be in other people's religious buildings. It would be down some of the darkest alleys where you're not meant to walk down because people try and sell you drugs. It would be in certain bars in town, which most of us wouldn't dare go to because we'd be scared. That's where you'd find Jesus. There's beauty in these stories. We're gonna worship in a minute, thanking God for our salvation, thanking God that we were lost and he has found us. But I don't want that to be the only thing we take from this. If we're followers of Jesus, then let's follow him. We're here in this city because of stories like this. You can't speak their language. There's loads of people around here who don't like what we believe. But these stories compel us to come. You don't have to get on an airplane to do this. But we do have to get a little bit out of our comfort zone. And right now, especially even more so because of COVID, if you think we're fearful if you think we're struggling with uncertainty and worry and anxiety which many of us are totally understandably but we're the ones with the hope we're the ones who know the end of the story how much more are the ones who don't know jesus struggling with uncertainty now is the time for us to find ways to reach out doesn't have to be through physically meeting we don't have to disobey the rules There are ways we can reach out with kindness to neighbours, to friends, through messaging, social media. And when we begin to get through some of this and get to reconnect with people, let's not just reconnect with the existing relationships. Let's make some new ones in other parts of town where we've never been to before. Because we're going after the lost. Because we're going to be the light in the dark place. Let's pray heavenly father thank you so much that you came for us thank you so much we could be the ones in this story we could be that sheep we could be that son but you came for us thank you light of the world you came and searched in the darkness we're going to worship you in a minute we will never stop worshiping and thanking you for that but i pray holy spirit now for everybody on this screen, will you just come to us and stir our hearts again? Lord, where worry and uncertainty, where this whole virus thing is making our world smaller and making our souls smaller, and sometimes just squeezing the life out of us, because every day is unpredictable. Every day there's a different guideline to follow. Every day there's an implication for our schools and our kids that we've never lived through time like this. Come to us now, Holy Spirit. People on this call, I'm flicking my screen across. I'm praying for each of you you just receive. Holy Spirit, I pray for everyone on this call. Would you come to them with some peace and power and strength now? You didn't come to seek and save the lost and then leave us. You came to adopt us and bring us into your family, to a place of joy, a place of strength. And I'm looking at some faces, and I'm like, Lord, they need to know your peace now. They need to have some hope restored. Lord, some of them are anxious for their children. It's such a nightmare what's happening at school. And the children are unsettled. Come, Lord God. Your word says in Isaiah 40, you gently lead those who have young. In other words, the parents. Lord, come to parents now and gently lead them and help them. I pray that fear would not rule and reign in our hearts. But hope. The joy that we see in this story, that no matter what happens, the priority is you have rescued us and saved us. Our relationship has been restored with you. Hallelujah. For those of us that have lost the joy of that, it just seems very distant with everything that's going on. Restore joy to our hearts. We know Jesus. There's an awful lot of needs that we've got, and we wish they were fixed, but the biggest one is done. We have been restored. Death will not rob us of that. And the Holy Spirit, stir us afresh for those who don't know you, for those who are far away, and keep showing us how we can love and connect in these days. Never has there been a time like this where the world needs to see your love and your peace. And I thank you that the people I'm looking at are doing that and can do that. More, Lord God. More power, more compassion, more mercy. Amen.